Brothers and sisters, as we're gathered together this morning, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, uh, as we are here in our time for Sunday school, we are endeavoring upon a important study for us to consider in the midst of a world that continues to discuss issues related to social justice. Father, we need your word to provide light into this discussion. And so we pray you'll be with us, that you will help us, that uh, through this we will see the, the glory and the beauty of Christ, and that we'll learn more and more what it means to live as Christians in this sinful and fallen world because of Christ's salvation and the work he has accomplished for his people and ultimately the restoration of this world. So we pray you'll be with us and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are, uh, after waiting to begin this study of the Bible, racism, and social justice. Uh, but I knew this would be helpful to our church today because, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about social justice over the last several years. Uh, this doesn't come as a surprise to many of you if you've interacted with many people or discussed it uh, with others. You know how... Um, controversial and challenging uh, this whole subject is. After all, we are all familiar with the ongoing racial tensions which have filled the news, especially this year uh, with the um, death of, of George Floyd especially, but other uh, black men and women who have been killed by armed police, and this has led to protests and riots and uh, calls uh, for renewed calls for Black Lives Matter. Uh, but we've also witnessed an increased political polarizations between different groups in our society. We recently completed a presidential election that uh, continues to cause questions and concerns and struggles among us. Of course, we have a growing diversity as well as cultural shifts that have led to the rise of new questions and concerns among us. But as a result, we have been wrestling over these questions of injustice in our society as well as for the need for change and resolution. So, of course, what should we as Christians think about these questions and these challenges? I hope that this short study will help us to begin to be able to answer this question. And so for the next six classes, we're going to be recording our time together to benefit those who aren't able to join us or so that we can go and uh, go back and watch them together. But I hope that uh, you're coming ready to take notes since I'll be teaching uh, for the first third of our time together and then we'll turn off the recording to allow for a free time of question and discussion among our church family. So with this in mind, let's consider the challenge before us. Uh, as the debate of just social justice has continued, as I've said, it's become quite controversial. And so uh, we have find it now dividing churches. This hits close to many of us here, as we are aware of a local church in our own community that has recently split over concerns regarding social justice. And our own church is not immune from such division. 
We want to remain united since Christ, of course, has brought us together through His shed blood on the cross. We should never take such unity for granted. The work to maintain the oneness that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. But not only do we have this debate dividing churches, the rise of social justice has also been confusing Christians. After all, what is social justice? What are we talking about? For many of us, this is a new concept. Do we need to become more involved in social justice? And if so, how? Or is social justice an alternative approach to life which is, approached, uh, which is opposed to Christianity? Do we embrace it or should we avoid it? Christians have come to many different conclusions. And I know that many of us in this church have been wrestling over the issues that social justice has raised. So we don't want to avoid the subject or be confused whenever it comes up, but as Christians, we want and need to answer these questions from God's Word. Furthermore, there's been a growing focus on social justice in the education of our children. The teaching of social justice issues have been incorporated into school curriculum. It has become influential in many college courses and programs, and it has been inundating our youth and children. So what should they think about it? And how should we as parents come alongside them in the midst of these concerns? How concerned should we be, after all, as these ideas become more and more prevalent in our culture and persuasive to the next generation? So these are just a few of the reasons that I have decided it is time for us to look at these questions in this debate more seriously as a church family. Um, so that's a little bit about the importance of our study, but now I want to speak of the goals of our study. What do I hope to accomplish in this series? Well, I have three goals for us that come through God's Word. First, to develop a biblical understanding of justice. See, we're all using words here like racism, oppression, injustice, and many others, yet do we know what these words mean biblically? I'm convinced that we far too often use these words and refer to these concepts without actually understanding what they mean or how they relate to a biblical worldview. The result is that these words are often used with different meanings attached so that what I mean by racism is different than what you mean by racism or what I mean by injustice is different than what you mean by injustice. The Bible reveals to us what these words and concepts mean and how we should live in light of them. So we need to spend some time hearing from God rather than simply listening to various contemporary voices. Many of us know 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 well, but it's helpful to remind ourselves of this truth, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, God's Word is authoritative and sufficient in revealing God to us and in instructing us how to live, which is why the majority of our time in this study will be spent constructing a biblical understanding of justice rather than critiquing popular positions today. But not only do I want us to develop a biblical understanding of justice, another goal is to prevent being persuaded by worldly philosophies. Obviously, there are dangers out there that seek to persuade us of falsehoods. And they have the appearance of truth, but ultimately lead us astray. 
as the Apostle Paul warns us in Colossians 2, verses 8 to 10, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So popular philosophies may tempt us to compromise our faith, including social issues. So we, my goal is for us to develop a biblical understanding of justice as well as to prevent being persuaded by worldly philosophies. But then my third goal is to avoid unnecessary division. Because God's truth unites his people, which is Christ's desire for his church. And as Jesus prayed to God the Father in his high priestly prayer, uh, John 17, verses 20 to 23, I do not pray for these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So there are times when division is unnecessary. At our core, our desire should be to work towards unity. Of course, division is sometimes necessary. The Bible warns us against false teachers and dangerous doctrines that undermine Christ's gospel and his word. That's why the Apostle Paul condemned those who preached any other gospel than what the apostles had preached to us in Galatians 1, 6-9. And he warns us against those who come and preach another Jesus whom they have not preached. If you receive a different spirit which you've not received or a different gospel which you've not accepted in 2 Corinthians 11 verses 1 to 4. But in our zeal to remain faithful to God, the truth is over the years and the centuries, Christians have divided over many beliefs and practices that ought not to divide us. May we be known then by the famous statement often attributed to Augustine, in, all, uh, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I'm sure many of you have heard that famous quote before, but may it be true of us. And let us love one another and think the best of one another as we seek to come to one mind regarding these divisive issues related to social justice. May we not be quick to divide but quick to love and seek unity through God's Word. So, those are three goals that I have for us through this study. Then I also want us to consider uh, the biblical attitude that is required for our study. See, while we pursue these goals in our study, I also want us to maintain a biblical attitude as we wrestle over these important questions and issues. And the primary verse that I want us to keep in mind is James 1.19. So please turn with me to this verse, to this passive scripture, because we want to spend some time orienting our minds around this verse. I mean, it's, it's worth us memorizing together. So here we are in uh, the epistle or letter of James. James is writing to Christians. And to all of us in this verse, 
So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So within verse 19, we are given three commands from God, right? First, be swift to hear. Second, be slow to speak. And third, be slow to wrath. So let's consider each of these uh, this morning. First, be swift to hear. See, there are many who are hurting, who are struggling in our churches and in our society. They complain of injustice, of racism, of oppression. Have we taken time to listen to their concerns, to lament over their pain, to learn from their experiences, or do we dismiss them out of hand do we ignore them because they don't agree with our own opinions and views? Do we quickly criticize them by assuming we already know their position and its problems? We live, after all, in a fast-paced society that often demands immediate response and reaction, yet true wisdom is found in our quickness and readiness to hear what others have to say. Now, as these controversies have erupted recently, we've heard calls to action like silence is violence. But all too often, this is the very opposite approach to how God calls us to live. Yes, there are times we must speak up as Christians and as Christ's church, and to not do so is sinful. But it would be better to first ask ourselves, have I taken the time to hear what those whom I disagree with have to say? How well do I understand the issues involved in this debate? Will I be able to speak the truth in love towards God and others? So we must be swift to hear. But then secondly, this verse shows us that we must be slow to speak. Of course, this is the counterpart to the previous command. I need to be quiet as I listen. After all, we may think we have the answer before we have fully understood the question. We may believe we can resolve the issue before we have really heard the complexity of the concern. Being patient as we listen will help us to prepare to speak the truth wisely and well. See, it's after we listen that we will then be ready to speak truthfully into contentious discussions, which is why we listen to others so that we can faithfully bring God's word to bear and rightly apply the scriptures as we speak. As Ecclesiastes 3.7 reminds us, there is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Now, I know that there are many people out there who will dismiss whatever I have to say because I am a Christian white man. Since I haven't lived through what minorities and oppressed groups have experienced, I do not have the right to speak about social justice. But this kind of postmodern subjectivity and relativism will never bring us together in pursuing the truth. It will only further fragment us as we only associate with those whom agree with us. Additionally, what is true, of course, does not depend on me. It does not depend on you, but on our God who is Lord over all and who has revealed the truth to us. So my hope isn't found in my intelligence or in my insight, but in God's word. 
And the Scripture is universally true for all of humanity. It is then in the Scriptures that God's truth is found. Yet, at the same time, I should have humility to recognize that my knowledge and my experiences are limited. And they do impact how I read and understand God's Word, as well as how I view what is taking place in the world today. So, I have sought to practice this verse through the rise of this controversy. I have been reading many books, articles, and online pieces from different perspectives. I have listened to various podcasts, interviews, conference sessions, and sermon series. I've been studying more of Western history, American history, and church history. And of course, I don't say any of this to suggest that I have now become an expert on the subject or that I don't have anything to learn. Quite the opposite. I recognize how much more growing I need to do in my understanding and working through these issues. But I have sought to be swift to hear and slow to speak. I'm asking you to adopt the same attitude. Wherever your conviction may lie, we will all benefit by practicing this verse in the debate over social justice. I can tell you that it has been a blessing to my own soul as I have been convicted and challenged in my study. And I hope the same will be true for all of you as well. So, we are to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and then finally, slow to wrath. Because in controversies like this, emotions quickly get involved as we become passionate in defending our positions. This often brings anger into our hearts against those with whom we disagree. But our brothers and sisters in Christ deserve better. Christ has given us the command to love one another. And as Paul unfolds what this love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So does this describe us as we discuss and debate social justice as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Frankly, social media has not helped us here. And neither has our political climate. Of course, the Bible says there is such a thing as righteous anger, and there is a time for us to become wrathful towards false teaching and sinful behavior. But as James 1.19 states, we are to be slow to wrath. Even as heresies developed through the history of the church, they took years and even centuries to study Scripture and to come to a consensus before condemning the heresy and clarifying what God's Word teaches through our creeds and confessions. So we should practice a similar patience in our own day as we are slow to wrath. So that gives you a little bit of background as we begin this study together, not only the importance of the study, but also our goals in the study and the biblical attitude I hope we will all uh, uphold and adhere to through our study. Let's then turn to the first question I think it's important for us to ask if we're talking about social justice, and that is the question, what is justice? How would you answer that question? What is justice? Well, to start, we need to look what the Bible reveals about God and mankind, because the two really can't be separated 
as John Calvin writes at the beginning of his important work, Institutes the Christian Religion. Uh, Calvin writes, our, our wisdom, in so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists in almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. So this morning, we're going to consider them together as they relate to justice, both God and man. And that's why I've titled this first class of our time together, The Revelation of God and His Image Bearers. So let's begin by considering the truth that God is just. God is just. See, when we speak of God, we often refer to His attributes in order to describe Him. And since God is simple, we shouldn't consider His attributes as parts of God, where you add all of them together and the result is God. But His attributes are different ways that we describe God from our perspective as he has revealed himself to us for us to understand. You may consider a finely cut diamond that is placed under a fine light. What happens? But it becomes a prism through which many different colors result. Well, in a similar way, God is light and his attributes are the colorful reflections that we see through his revelation to us. So in our study, I want us to consider three of God's attributes his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. Let's begin then with God's holiness. See, God is unique and separate from creation as our perfect and good creator. So after God saved his people Israel from Egyptian slavery, Moses and the children of Israel sang a song to the Lord in Exodus chapter 15. And in verse 11, we have a great declaration of God through two rhetorical questions in this song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Of course, the answer to these questions, both of these questions, is no one. This is why God is called holy. And throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for holy means to be marked off or to be separate from common use. But turn with me in God's word to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, because here this passage is one of the clearest displays of God's holiness in Scripture, which is why it was a favorite of R.C. Sproul as he taught on the holiness of God. So here we come to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's read together verses 1 to 7. In, that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, 
Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. So we have Isaiah here who sees the Lord on his throne with his angels declaring his holiness. And this three-time use of the word holy emphasizes and elevates the word. The way we would italicize and underline and use exclamation marks today. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, He is absolutely holy. And how does Isaiah respond to such a glorious display of God's holiness? But he recognizes how unworthy he is to be in God's presence. He is too sinful to see his holy king. But holiness not only refers to God's majesty, it also speaks of his goodness and of his moral purity. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk speaks to God and says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, that you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? So what do we see there? After recognizing God's purity and goodness, Habakkuk wrestles over a question that many of us ask. Why does God allow wickedness and evil in this world? And while this is a crucial question for us to consider, the reason it's so difficult is and, and why it's such a common objection from skeptics is because we recognize that God's holiness means he is pure. That he can't even behold evil or look on wickedness. That's why we then read in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. See, God is holy, and he is holy good. Which then brings us to a related attribute. We have God's holiness, but then we also speak of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is his holiness that's revealed to his creation. And so we recognize God's righteousness through his law, which reflects his character of perfect purity. That's why Louis Burkhoff writes in his classic work on systematic theology, though there is no law above God, there is certainly a law in the very nature of God, and this is the highest possible standard by which all other laws are judged. For example, let's turn to Psalm chapter 19. Here, after speaking of how God's creation reveals to us his glory, David goes on to uh, reveal more of God's law here in verses 7 to 9, or to speak and write of God's law in verses 7 to 9. So Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, 
or is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So do you hear the language that's being used here? God's law is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true and righteous altogether. So it is through God's law that his righteousness is revealed. And since God's laws are righteous, is a reflection of his character, he always acts in accordance with his law. In Genesis chapter 18, you may remember from my recent sermon series on Father Abraham, we have Abraham recognizing this when he intercedes for the righteous who were living in Sodom. So Abraham prays to the Lord in verses 23 to 25. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is appealing to God's righteousness in his judgment against the sin of Sodom. See, we can trust in God to do what is right. Let's consider one more passage, though, on God's righteousness before we continue. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, because here we have words from God himself. We read, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his insight in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So God delights in exercising righteousness in the earth because he is righteousness. That's why we can then trust him to do what is right. So we've considered briefly God's holiness, God's righteousness, but this then brings us to God's justice. See, God's justice is his righteousness administered in his creation. So do you see how these three connect and come together? In other words, God's justice is his righteous rule over his creation. And since he is righteous, he requires righteousness in his creation. So let's turn to Job 34. Because after Job has gone through some tragic trials many of you are familiar with, he requires righteousness in his creation. I'm sorry. I went back in my notes there. After Job had gone through these tragic trials, his friends became poor counselors, right? That makes more sense. His friends became poor counselors as they continued to discuss what happened to him. But finally, Elihu came to prepare the way of the Lord. And after criticizing Job's friends, Elihu proclaims God's justice. So let's read what he says about it in verses 10 to 12. Job 34 
verses 10 and 12. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Do you see then how God's righteousness and his justice relate? His righteousness manifests itself in his justice towards us. These verses also show us that God's justice gives everyone they do, their due. Either he rewards them for their obedience to his law, or he penalizes them for their disobedience to his law, as we read there in verse 11. So, God holds us accountable for how we live according to his righteous standard. And we see all of this, uh, or we see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when God commanded Adam, back in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So after Adam then ate from the forbidden tree, he was punished, as we read in Genesis 3, verses 17 and 19. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And like Adam, we will all be held accountable for our sins against God. Adam is our father, and we follow in his footsteps. Which is why in God's just judgment, he shows no partiality, but treats us equally. So let's turn then to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And read verses 12 to 17, because here God's people Israel have been given God's law and about, are about to enter the promised land. And this is what God says to them. So Deuteronomy 10, read uh, verse 12 through 17. And now, o Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers uh, to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. So God's people here are commanded to live according to God's law, which is given for their good while knowing that he will judge them. And when he judges them, he will show no favoritism or partiality, but will deal and treat them fairly. Or we can turn to Romans chapter 2. Here, Romans 2, verses 2 to 11. 
accounts. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing about our accountability before God, and we read of his judgment. So, Romans 2, verses 2 through 11. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. What do we see of God and his justice here? That no one will escape the righteous judgment of God and there is no partiality with him. His justice will be fairly executed. So that's a little more about God's justice. And while I was hoping to continue on to the other side of mankind and our being created in God's image, brothers and sisters, I think we're going to hold off on that till next Sunday. So we have some time for discussion here this morning. So next week we will continue by looking at what it means to be created in God's image as well as what happens when we fall from God in our rebellion into sin against God and what that means for justice and uh, the, the challenges of racism and, and the need and, and in the growth of injustice and oppression in the world. So uh, let's, let's turn our attention then in time to these subjects next week.